from Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth, this is In Conversation With, the podcast from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, presented by Stuart Elford. With special guests, Nick Kelly, leader of Plymouth City Council. I came into politics because I feel passionately about this city. I'm Plymouth born and bred and my adage in life is, you know, you can moan all you want, but put yourself up there and try and make a change and step up to the plate. And Steve Warren-Brown of YGS Landscapes. I think it was the Abbey National Bank. I literally went in and my business plan was pretty much how I'm speaking to you now. Well, I know what I'm doing. I've just got my top qualification. I'm going to be fine. And £60,000 ended it in my palm, which I gave straight to my father to buy the business. Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, with another episode of our In Conversation With podcast. I'm delighted for the first half of the podcast to be joined for the Chamber Chat section by Nick Kelly, Leader of the Council. Welcome, Nick. Thank you, Stuart. Thanks for coming in, especially as you've just recovered from COVID. I have. I don't think I've quite recovered, but uh, I'm a lot better than I was. Thank you. Have you got any ongoing symptoms? No smell, no No taste. Some people would say never had that anyway, but Uh, people did that joke with me. (laughs) I've got a very strange long COVID symptom. This is serious. I can smell cigarette smoke all the time and I hate the smell of cigarettes and that's all I can smell and it's really driving me nuts and it's apparently quite common. Well, I'll let you know if that manifests, but at the moment mm. I can't taste or smell anything. But it's nothing in comparison to what a lot of people suffered, so I'm very thankful that with the two vaccinations I've had, hopefully I'm over the worst of it now. I think things like the pandemic that we've seen with people volunteering and stepping up to the plate is just very humbling and they are doing a fantastic job to try and make us all a little bit safer and a little bit healthier. I think, yeah, it's incumbent upon all of us to do it, isn't it? I was there queuing up first this morning. Just give me a jab. I'll take it. Anything, yeah, you know, if it's yeah. free and it's protecting me, I'll have it. Yeah, I think it's important that everybody does what they can to make sure that, A, they don't suffer badly if they do contract COVID because it's not pleasant. No. It's like bad flu or certainly my experience of it. And I guess if you're older or more susceptible, if you can do whatever you can to make sure your immune system is that much better to fight it off then i think it's got to be done yeah and you meet a lot of people don't you in your job so you've got to be doing your bit to protect them haven't you absolutely ironically i caught it from my wife who in turn caught it from my daughter up in london well i think that's the trace of where it's come from i had no idea where i got mine i had a week off i didn't go into the office i didn't go anywhere except on my motorbike and i've got this vague recollection of standing in a service station and somebody behind me coughing a lot because i can remember turning around being quite irritated by it and i think that's where i got it but you know it wasn't like i was at boardmark as hugging people or anything so i can't sort of you know say it was my fault but hey as you say lucky us we didn't get it so bad that you know others had it so the motto is don't turn around if someone's coughing just keep jab them with your brolly (laughs) and get back so most of my guests i've been able to research and find out some embarrassing stories about little anecdotes and things but annoyingly i've not been able to find out much about you nick so are you a very private person no not at all i'm a very open transparent person No, I don't have any particular secrets. I guess I've lived in Plymouth all my life. I've travelled quite a lot around the world on holidays. But there are some embarrassing things. I'm sure if you went back to some of my ex-work colleagues or school friends, they would tell you a few stories, which maybe I'll share with you if I get to know you a bit better. Okay. (laughs) Well, you know, maybe at one of these dinners I end up next to you at, I'll ply you with wine and try and find them. And I'd heard actually you love travel. So what's your favourite place in the world you've been, other than Plymouth, obviously? Goes without saying, Plymouth is unique and a place I'm thrilled to call home. Recently, we went on a cruise. We've got into cruising. 
And we stopped in Singapore. Right. And for me, that blew me away. I love architecture. And it was a real mix of old and new, the cleanliness, the high tech. If you like your brands and shopping, the climate was something else. The food just blew me away. So I would say at the moment, Singapore is the number one place for me. I've not been there. I've, I've done Thailand. I've been to Australia. I think for me, it was New Zealand. Well, one of my best friends who went into the RAF, he emigrated. And this contrast, you've got the sea and then you've got ski slopes and mountains, etc. Well, I'm told it's the only country in the world that has every type of climate from Arctic to tropical to desert to the whole thing from one end of the country yeah. to the other. And I just love I think Plymouth on days could rival that. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah Arctic. And they're just top gear. Chose to come to Plymouth on probably the windiest day ever, and they're practically blown off the hoe, weren't they? I thought, there we go, Plymouth, Smeaton's Tower, fantastic, but it was blowing a hooli, as yeah, we say. Well. It's a shame, because we've had Princess Royal down a few times recently, and each time she's come, she said, well, I know when I come to Plymouth, I always get inclement weather, and there was one at the Royal Citadel where it was absolutely hammering down, and you think... The city's great at any time, but we would just like to have fair skies, bit of sunshine, and really showcase it. And I think we did in Sale GP, thinking yeah, of that, actually. That was special. We were very lucky. But I say lucky. I have looked it up because I did hear this story that Plymouth has bad weather. But actually, we're nowhere near the top of the rainfall list. There's loads of cities that are worse than us. I think we just kind of concentrate on it. I do remember years ago, when I was at school, so many years ago, you could buy a T-shirt that said Plymouth Rain Festival, June 1st to May 31st. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of it picture of yeah, a cloud you yeah. know but it's not that bad i think what i learned as well is i'm very much i like the sun and fair weather and that but there are lots of people for their livelihoods that depend on having decent rainfall and i'm yeah, just yeah. reading jeremy clarkson's diddy squat oh that was book. amazing wasn't it and you know he's very sarcastic at the best of times but clearly there are times where you hope and pray for rain and whilst we all enjoy sunshine more often than not there are people that do want the opposite so i think it's horses for courses and i guess we've got in Plymouth a little mixture of everything so some days it can be sunny some days yeah. it can be rainy some days it can be windy and some days it can be a combination of all three we love variety absolutely what do they say if you don't like the weather wait 20 minutes it'll change absolutely but being a pale pasty Englishman I just crisp up in the heat so I couldn't live somewhere where it's really really hot I just keel over I think so I want to just talk before we go back to more fun stuff about <laughs> your job and you've been leader since May is that right that's right May the 22nd we formed an administration and I was sworn in as leader of Plymouth City Council. And since then, I mean, it's been a tough time to be leading a council or in fact anything. And you've had a tough time since. Are you still glad you took the job? Absolutely. I'm very, very proud and honoured to be able to lead our city. It's my home city and it's an opportunity that I'd hoped for. I've now got that opportunity and obviously want to make the best of it. But we have had a very turbulent seven months in yeah. all sorts of ways. Clearly the Kiam shooting was very heartrending, and then more recently the tragic murder of Bobby Ann McLeod in between or running throughout that. We've had COVID-19 stroke pandemic. And that has really challenged everybody, not just in the council, but every walk of life, be that worries about financial or health, but just your liberty and your day-to-day -day routine has gone completely out of the window. And we are creatures of habit by and large, aren't we? So it's been challenging, um, but I've enjoyed it. I can't say 
I've enjoyed every single minute of it. But more often than not, I've got up in the morning with vim and vigour and look forward to trying to make a positive difference for the city. Yeah, and we'll come back to that in a moment. As you're alluding to, you've had a particularly rough time of it lately. But I think I do want to just touch on the traumatic events that have happened to Plymouth recently. Do you think that's actually in some ways brought the city closer together? Or how do you think Plymouth has reacted to those terrible things? And we're talking about Bobby and McLeod and then before that, the terrible shootings in Keyham. I think both are tragic events, full stop. Mm. But the one solace that I've taken from it, especially with regards to Keyham, is just how Plymouth together did literally come together. We postponed the National Fireworks Championships and then decided to go ahead and the Mm. same with the Hatchling and that was a difficult decision but seeing all those phones and lights and the hearts and the applause to recognise and I guess celebrate the lives that have been lost was very very moving and I think truly people looked at themselves and that community spirit shone through no more so than in Keyham and they're still going through difficult times and then more recently with the Bobby Ann McLeod murder. Again, Plymouth has come together. It wants change, and I understand it needs change, and we need to make sure that our streets are as safe as they possibly can be so that everybody can go about their business with a confident air about them, that they're not in a city where awful things will happen to them because it is so rare and we don't have that in Plymouth. And I think that's probably what shocked us all. Absolutely, so it much was a shock. We don't generally have violence or a high degree of antisocial behaviour. And we certainly don't have killings or shootings, thankfully, very frequently at all. No, you're right. And, and for what it's worth, absolutely the right decision to go ahead with the fireworks and the hatchling. And it was a lovely celebration. And I was lucky enough on the first night to be a guest of the council. I saw you there. And the second night I was out on a friend's boat and we had a bunch of friends go out on the boat. And one of them I know gets quite emotional, as I do. And I said to him, look, I warn you, when the camera's phones are lit up, it's quite moving. And he's, oh, I'll be fine, I'll be fine. And then I looked at his face and tears streaming down his face. It was really emotional, Mm. but lovely to see everyone come together and, as you say, celebrate rather than be very maudlin and glum about it. And I think the other thing is that, you know, we shared a dinner a few weeks ago where the city came together. Yes, we had an enjoyable evening, but raised £35,000 on the night. And that in itself was very moving. A, because everybody came together, but B, the generosity of the gifts or the prizes that were put forward for the auction. And then, more importantly, people reach deep into their pockets to provide for a really worthwhile cause. And that money will make a significant difference for those people that have been badly affected. It will. I'm privileged enough to be asked to sit on the Plymouth Together Fund Committee to decide what happens to the money. And that in itself is a very sensitive subject because people have differing views. And people, for the right reasons, have raised money, but they haven't necessarily said what the money's for. So we've got a bit of a job to put it out. But actually, I think we've found a way forward that seems to be keeping everyone happy. And I mean, you're right. We need to make sure that money actually goes to where it was intended, that it does some good. It makes a real difference and an impact to the city because there's money that's arrived from government, isn't there, that will do more systematic stuff, I guess. But there are people in need in Keyham because of what happened. Yeah, I think there's different streams of money. I mean, you've got the voluntary donations, which is the businesses coming together. And indeed, I think it was about 25,000 that the community raised and then another 35, 36,000 on top. So it's probably about 60 odd thousand pounds and that is very much as you say you're on that board at the discretion of what the community want the monies that the council and the MPs Johnny Mercer and Luke Pollard have been working along with council officers and myself to make sure that we get the adequate funds to look after the community now in the short term and for a few years to come because trauma does manifest itself in very different ways those are bigger sums 
but clearly they have been given for specific reasons for mm. community safety or indeed to help the children and younger people with psychological help or any mental trauma that might manifest itself further down the line. And that will continue. So I think there's different pots, but ultimately, as an ex-financial advisor, what money does is it gives people choices. And if you don't have that money, you don't have those choices available. So I'm sure that you and everybody with whatever funds are available will use them wisely for the benefit of the community and in line with what the community are asking and wanting. Yeah, I interviewed Jabo Butera from Diversity Business Incubator, and he was talking about exactly that, that money gives people choice. And if you don't have the money, you don't have the choice. And that leads to health decisions. So if you can only afford the cheapest, worst food option, that's what you get. And if you do that, we end up with this terrible situation we have in Plymouth, where your life expectancy from one postcode to another one that's just a couple of miles away is nine years different. And that can't be right, can it? No, I mean, I've just been a guest at the Plymouth Rotary, which was uh, very encouraging. But absolutely, I raised the health inequalities and life expectancies. And just in a city of our size, some 264,000, and I don't know, probably 15 miles across, there is a large disparity. And Mm. that cannot be right. And certainly one of the priorities that I'm keen, along with my colleagues, to try and do is make sure that there's adequate access to better health care and also hopefully encourage people to make better lifestyle choices where possible. But some of it, unfortunately, does come down to having that choice and that is down to money. Yeah, sadly it is. I think it's sad that that is what we have in this city, but I don't think it's necessarily just Plymouth. I mean, this happens everywhere. And in fact, I've been campaigning through British Chambers of Commerce, as you know, to get more investment in our region. You know, I'm fed up with hearing about a north-south divide when I think there's actually an east-west divide, particularly a south-west that's been overlooked. But actually, the very trendy levelling up phrase, some of that needs to go on at a micro level because we need to level up what's happening in our cities for coastal towns and rural towns that struggle to compete and to have what other towns have. You're absolutely right. This levelling up, as it's been told, people have different levels and what I think is level, somebody else might disagree. But what we do clearly need to do within our own remit, within our own city, is try to make sure that everybody has better life opportunities and better choices and better chances to succeed in whatever they do. And the pandemic has brought home to me, not that I was badly affected with COVID, but when you've got good health, you take it for granted. When you haven't, you put everything else aside and just wish if only I was fit and healthy again. Mm. You had a period of ill health before you went into politics, didn't you? Well, when you said about being a pasty white Englishman, I think that was was, referring to you. I was talking to me, I was talking about myself. Uh, A few years back was diagnosed with a malignant melanoma on my arm which fortunately was caught early and taken out so that was that scare I've also suffered in the past no make no bones about it with regards to poor mental health Mm -hmm. so that is very dear to me and it's something that I think physical disabilities and illnesses generally you get a lot of people recognize and can see it it, yeah Mm I still think, although things are getting better, there is a real stigma when people suffer from poor mental health, and that can manifest itself in many, many ways. And there's mm-hmm. lots of people that go about their day-to-day business, carry out very high-powered roles and jobs, but actually are having very immense struggles within themselves and what's going on in their head at any time. And the adage of be kind to people, etc. I do think there's a lot to be said for that because we don't always know what's going on in somebody else's world. And sometimes the way they act or they don't act maybe if we just take a step back and we're a little bit kinder to people every now and again that would not be a bad thing i completely agree still to come steve warren brown of ygs landscapes
I think I'm a workaholic. I'm very driven by that and always wanting to do better. And when I was younger, I didn't really appreciate the need or concept for rest. Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. And on which subject? I mean, this brings me back to this point of, well, firstly, politicians can be incredibly unkind to each other. I mean, seize upon any little thing Mm. and go for the jugular. So it's very brave of you to put yourself into that world, knowing that your mental health hasn't always been great. I came into politics because I feel passionately about this city. I'm Plymouth born and bred. And my adage in life is, you know, you can moan all you want, but put yourself up there and try and make a change and step up to the plate. That's what I've done. There will be people that think I do a fantastic job. There'll be others that don't think that I've made much of a difference. And that's what Western society and freedom of speech is all about. Everyone is entitled to their opinion. What I think is disappointing at times is people don't attack with any substance it becomes very personal attack and i think that's what probably turns a lot of people off with politics most that enter politics do for the right reasons they want to try to make a positive change mm. different parties have different philosophies of how we should get there and what we should do and that's fine but when it becomes very personal you've got to be a very thick skin for it not to affect you i've not been in Plymouth all my life but for most of it i think i was about eight when i came down here And I've been hearing ever since then, oh, Plymouth's a city with potential. But in the last couple of years, I've been hearing Plymouth is a city realising its potential. And when you look at the box and Royal William Yard and the Market Hall and the National Marine Park and everything, you just sense this is our time, isn't it? Well, I think you can be an honorary Janna now. Can I? <laughs> long enough. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not aging you, but if you came over when you were eight, you've been down here a long time. I've lived here all my life. And you said earlier when we were talking, I've been privileged. that I've traveled to quite a few places in the world. I call this home. I'm proud to call it home. And I think that that potential is being realized with some of the projects that you've spoken about. But I think also, for me, what I really would like to leave as a legacy is that civic pride. I'd like Plymouthians to feel that their city is special. They are proud to say they're from this city. And when they look around and visit other places, yes, there'll always be somebody that's got a bigger building or better shops or what have you. But overall, I think we've got a pretty special place here that we call home. And I think some of the inward investment, some of the businesses, some of the local community that we've spoken about really do make this a special place. And it is about the people as well. Mm. You know, the people by and large, I think are very friendly down here. And yes, we need as the council to try to do some place shaping, but fundamentally it's that warmth, that togetherness and that West Country Plymouthian spirit that I think gives us our uniqueness. And as you say, you know, Top Gear, we're up on the hoe, is fantastic. We've had Princess Royal down three times. We've had Australian High Commissioner. And there's a lot of money flowing into Plymouth in various guises. And that can only be really positive for what that potential is going to do. But hopefully we'll be able to say it's being realised now. Definitely. Do you know, years ago, I was lucky enough to be invited to a lunch with Mervyn King, who was then the governor of the Bank of England. And I said to him, how do we attract good investment down here? And he said, you invest in yourselves. There's nothing more powerful than a city that's investing in itself. Well, look at the money that went into the box. And I've got to say, cross-party support. Isn't it lovely that the things that really matter, you know, these cultural things, people things, are above party politics. Everyone saw that was a great thing. 
And I've seen Plymouth rebranded a whole bunch of times. I've seen Positively Plymouth. I've seen Spirit of Discovery or Spirit of Disco by the time someone had got to the sign. <laughs> and then when Britain's Ocean City came up, I kind of get that. I wasn't totally sold on it, but I was definitely going to get behind it. And then when I heard about the National Marine Park, I thought, that's what we are. We are Britain's Ocean City. And as you said, it's about civic identity and civic pride and for me what i ultimately want to see is what i call the taxi driver test i've got in a couple of places new zealand as we talked about earlier where you get in a cab and before you've opened your mouth they want to tell you how great their city is and oh you've got to check this out you've got to check that that's what i want in our city i want to get in a cab and have someone say to me have you been to the box have you checked out the national marine park have you done this wouldn't that be brilliant it will be and mayflower 400 was the big year for plymouth and then through the pandemic it didn't perhaps pan out as all of us had hoped but i think it put us on the map and we did have some very spectacular events to celebrate that landmark. Going back to taxis, we've got a shortage at the moment, but we did look to do ambassador training with our taxi drivers because for anybody visiting the city, that's probably the first point of contact. Mm. And as you said, when you do go abroad, taxi drivers will say, you must see this, you must see that, don't miss this, this is a great restaurant. And it is that pride. It's also Mm. that just public spiritedness to say you're in a place that I call home and I work and I'm proud of it and let me share my knowledge Mm. with you so that you get the best visit and enjoyment that you can. And I think there's work to be done, but some of the projects that you just mentioned, Stuart, you know, the box has won umpteen different awards recently. Mm. It is spectacular in every sense and it will go on continuing to evolve and the displays and the exhibitions hopefully will give different people different contrast and something of interest. And then when you spoke about the National Marine Park, Britain's Ocean City is a strap line that's stuck. I think it's quite catchy. Whether people think we're on an ocean technically or not is a discussion point in itself. But what we undeniably have down here is very, very strong links to our local waters, be that through the Navy, Mayflower 400, or Sail GP events and fishing. And I think that's what makes Plymouth a very special city is its Mm. local water. And more importantly, we need to celebrate that and get more people on it, in it and under it to really enjoy what this city can offer. Yeah, it's going to be brilliant. I just like that we declared ourselves the National Marine Park. Nobody knew how to do it. So we just said we were and it's kind of happening now. And I kind of feel the same about we are the world centre for marine autonomy. And I think we should just say we are. Ask for forgiveness, not permission. I think we are. I think we've been doing that quite a bit. And I think that's Mm. one of the specialities that we have very much put the blue-green sector Mm. at its heart. And we do have some cutting-edge businesses. And I've been fortunate over recent weeks and months to go out with the Catwater Harbour Commission on their pilot. And I've seen the seagrass that's being planted just off Jenny Cliff and went over to Turn Chapel and some of the organisations over there that really are at the forefront of cutting edge. We've also got Ocean's Gate. So what I think we need to do, along with Plymouth Science Park, for example, is really start to shine a light on all the great employers, all the great work that our Mm. city's doing, because we are a real powerhouse when it comes to manufacturing as well. And I mean, Mm. from your point of view, the Devon and Plymouth Chamber, you've got lots of members that are keen to promote their businesses. Mm. And I think we just need to, all of us, step up and talk ourselves up more because we've got so much that we should be incredibly proud of. And that will resonate. And it's that ripple effect, isn't it? And when you go somewhere in this country or abroad, oh, you're from Plymouth. Oh, yeah. I know about Plymouth. I know about Smeaton's Tower. I know that you're famous for this. I know you're famous for Mm. that. And it just is like, wow, yes. Yeah. Oh, it's a fantastic city. We've got to be Mm. proud of that. We've got to stand up and sing about it. And in fact, we want to do an event with you. So you'll know that Babcock are investing billions in the city and want to increase the local spend. We're going to do a pitch and procure event 
where you get a panel of senior procurers, people like the City Council, Babcock, NHS, and then we're going to have people coming and pitching at them for just literally two or three minutes to say what fabulous things they're doing. And we'll get 20 or 30 through at a time and hope that that starts really interesting conversations about what they can do together. Well, one of the most powerful conversations that I had and the most exciting was with Paul Foster of Babcock recently. We do have the largest naval base in Western Europe and Babcock are our largest employer, but there is a wall that goes round and mm. it is that secrecy. And I understand from a defence sector point of view, you know, that there are important things that go on and need to remain confidential and private. But the spending power that Babcock have is phenomenal. And what Paul shared was he would very much like that to be more local pans for local businesses. And I think the opportunities there, I know, Stuart, we've spoken in the past and I've worked with our procurement officers at Plymouth City Council to try to break down the red tape, the barriers to allow people to understand what people can tender for, the opportunities that are available Mm. and take away that red tape and bureaucracy that any business of any size, if they want to invest a little bit of time to get on those approved tender list, then they can have a slice of the pie. And I'm very, very keen. I'm delighted that our social value concept within Plymouth City Council is going from strength to strength. And we are very, very keen to spend far more of our money and Paul Foster with a huge budget is very keen to try to support more local businesses and be that from as in his words sandwiches to very high-tech component one-off pieces bespoke work and that can only improve communication it can only improve the prosperity of all in the city and I think that is just so so exciting it is I mean he's inspirational isn't he because he's going one further he's saying if I can't procure it locally and I have to go outside I'll make sure they base themselves locally which is fantastic and he also which what led to this pitch and procure idea was that he said I want to pitch things that I don't even know I need yet but also if someone pitches something that they may be not big enough to supply the whole of Babcock but he can introduce them to their supply chain so yes you may not be able to deliver sandwiches to the many thousands of people who work behind that wall but I can introduce you to someone who does and I think that's really good let's get this spend local and really do things for our local businesses I mean what I do think Plymouth is really strong at is networking and I know you've been instrumental with regards to the organization that you head up that friendships develop business is business but if you can do business with people that you actually have some common understanding of Mm. and perhaps have a pint and a laugh and a joke with that makes life and work life far more enjoyable that you're dealing and working (laughs) with people that you know you want to spend quality time with and those don't become just a business acquaintances they actually lead to long enduring friendships and Mm. Plymouth is a relatively large city but it's also a village and I think the more that we can support and work with each other and like any family you'll have disagreements at times or the numbers won't stack up but I think there's a lot to be said for trust and trying to work together and that trust and working together comes by spending more quality time with people because you get to know who they are and what they represent and what they're all about yeah what their values are a little bit like me talking to you today sharing not just about politics we've all got ideas of what's right wrong or indifferent but what do people actually stand for what are their true core values Mm. and if you can resonate with different people from different organizations and you've got that symmetry all of a sudden you can forge some really strong relationships going forward and speaking of spending quality time before we end who do you like to spend quality time with outside of business and council and work what do you do you mentioned you were fishing as well 
I spend a lot of time with my wife. We enjoy foreign travel. We've got a farmhouse down near La Rochelle that we spend at least four weeks of the year, ideally down there, just chilling out. La Rochelle is very similar to Plymouth, mm. so we enjoy the sea. I love all sports. Mm. In my day, although I don't look at it now, I was pretty handy at most things, especially football. Argyle, I like to go and see every now and again. Mm. Any sporting prowess within the city lifts the whole city and yeah. unites the city. So I enjoy that. My main passion is deep sea angling. That's when you said about getting dressed mm. off. That's when I put my waterproofs or flotation suits on and bobble hats and face the elements and just at one with nature. And I love that. I love the sea breeze. I love the challenge of being out 50, 60 miles mid-channel, fishing for pollock, bass, conger, ling, local fish that you can eat. And that's my main hobby. I'm an armchair sports fan mm. now. I watched avidly the F1. There was no controversy yeah, there at all. Yeah. at all. No, let's not even start with that. And I'm very family orientated. I've got a son and a daughter that have graduated now and they've moved to London. So I don't spend as much time over the last few months because they've got their own lives, which are exciting. And I've got a relatively tight but small circle of friends that mm. I enjoy you know, having a glass of wine and a meal out and just chillaxing, talking about all sorts. And we try to avoid politics yeah. because that is divisive. <laughs> yes, politics and religion. You can't really talk about either Absolutely. of those, can you? No, best not. But I'm glad we've spoken about some things that weren't political and I'm glad we've covered the things that were. It's been a real delight. Thank you so much for coming in and giving up your time because I know you're slightly busy at the moment. Thanks very much. Stuart, thanks for giving me the opportunity and hopefully you've got a little bit more. And next time maybe you will have that embarrassing story on me. But lovely. I'll work on it. I'll work on it. Yeah. Thank Thank you, Nick Kelly. And now, Chambermaid, introducing business owners from across the Southwest. Hello there. Welcome back to part two of our In Conversation with Podcasts. This is the section called Chamber Made, and we are joined by members of the Chamber who can talk about their businesses and what they've done, and we get to know a bit more about them. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Steve Warren-Brown of YGS Landscapes. Hi, Steve. Hi, Stu. How are you? I'm all right. Don't look so frightened. It's it's all going to be good. I suspect a lot of our listeners will have known you or met you because of the nicest possible way. You're everywhere in the business community in this region, I mean. Landscaping is important to me. It's been my career for all my life. And what landscaping does and what landscaping can do, that whole agenda about, we'll touch on it, I'm sure, tree planting and just the good stuff that we can do for the green environment. So, yeah, I do put a lot of effort into networking. It's a very important part of sort of my goal, which is over the next 10 years to plant as many trees as I can and get people doing the right stuff for the planet. Yeah, great. And we will. You're right. We're going to come back to that because there's a lot of good stuff to talk to. But it started many years ago as why Jess was Yelm Garden Services. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, my father started the business in 1973. And then uh, seven years of age, I was given a spade with no handle. I wasn't big enough to actually hold the whole thing and I guess I went through what was probably a bit more common in those days if I did anything naughty then straight out into the garden get on with some weeding or do something in the garden so I started negatively in the actual industry but by the time I got to sort of 14 and 15 having read books again my father was sort of important part of that he encouraged slash forced me to learn Latin and by the time I sort of 15 or 16 I'd kind of decided this was a good career path to get into not necessarily understanding where it would lead, but I was interested. I was that kid that sat down and watched all the David Attenborough films. I was that kid that, you know, I looked at the birds on the bird table and I enjoyed anything to do with nature. So that was me, really. How did Yelm Garden Services develop and how has it got to you? I went off when I was 18 to Marris Wood, a horticultural agricultural college in Surrey. 
and quite literally dad put my suitcases on the train and said don't bother coming back unless you meet the queen and we are talking now 1987 so no mobile phones no faxes it was before faxes before emails i'm sure you can relate to all of this you know pens and papers ruled so i went to Marisford and i studied three years landscape design and construction what he was referring to was the third year students would build a garden for the chelsea flower show as a student entrance for the, one of the show gardens and he had mentored an apprentice five years before me and of course this apprentice had gone off to Marriswood and he'd been part of a gold winning team and he had met the Queen because he'd been chosen to be the foreman as they called them in those days so I was under quite a bit of pressure my dad yeah, no was pressure at all. My, uh, do <laughs> so I had a lot to live up to but I realized I was fortunate because I'd been in the industry for a while with my father that I was ahead of the game so I was quietly confident coming into year three that that would be achieved and obviously that was really important to me to do that make my dad proud and whatever what I didn't or hadn't realized is that it wasn't down to your skill set it was down to your popularity and I unfortunately because I had been ahead of the game for want of a better word and I'm talking I'm 18 19 here my Mm. social skills in the context were perhaps not as good as they are when you get older I wasn't cocky about it but when set a task because I did it twice as quick as anybody else or my first year average on my planting knowledge was 99.96 I got one letter wrong over the year you know I know outrageous I didn't tell my dad that one because of that I didn't realize that the popularity stakes I wasn't there so I was absolutely mortified when we got to year three and then they decided it was all on a vote I got voted second, so I ended up being the assistant foreman. However, the foreman went off sick. How did that happen, Steve? You didn't... <laughs> with your knowledge of plants... I have no idea what you're inferring, Stuart. <laughs> <Yeah, sorry. laughs> he actually went off sick, and it was quite... For me, I saw it as a real opportunity, and I then led the team for those 10 days or whatever it was. And it's a really high-pressured thing for you know someone I was 20 then or whatever, and really enjoyable, very exciting, completely different world. I'd lived in Plymouth all my life. I couldn't even spell the word London, let alone be associated or doing something in and around London. Really exciting. But then he came back the day before the handover and he met the Queen. And I remember being in the van on the morning of it. No. Have you met her Madge since? I haven't. No, I haven't. No. And I'd love to. She's an inspirational person. I mean, phenomenal. Amazing. Yes. So it's on the bucket list as well. Then I decided to come back to Devon. I'd been offered a couple of other jobs. My father was very clear that he was expecting me to come back and work with him to grow the family business. And unfortunately, I didn't realise at the time, but when I came back, within eight weeks, he'd left the country with a young gentleman and moved abroad. I didn't know that. And it was quite a challenging time. My mum got very upset. My brother had some real issues with it. And I fundamentally had the challenge of, I couldn't leave. And I had the challenge of, you know, I've got to make this work. And kind of, in some ways... He manipulated the situation because I was, I use my words as I've used before, maybe a bit ahead of the game. I was reasonably talented. He had confidence that I would be the one that would be able to facilitate him leaving rather than just but dropping it on my mum. unfair to put that on you at that young age. Dreadfully unfair. And it's a skeleton in the closet that probably will never go away now that I'm a father and have been for 20 years plus. I can't get my head around how you can do something like that to one of your kids. I settle it in my head on the belief that he was clearly an ill man. He'd been living a lie for a long time. And I believe that back then it wasn't as understood as it is now. And therefore, living that lie, there was a way out. Yeah. 
well, it's no criticism from that point of view. I just think to put that pressure on a young person to take on the business. I often tell the kids this, you know, we were living in different times. I think it was the Abbey National Bank. I literally went in and my business plan was pretty much how I'm speaking to you now. Well, you know, I know what I'm doing. I can do some gardening. I can do some this, I can do some that. I've just got my top qualification, I'm going to be fine. And £60,000 ended it in my palm, which I gave straight to my father to buy the business. So ridiculously, when I look back, how it happened. And fortunately, part of the deal was a package of land. And I managed to, with the help of my brother and my mum and various other people, we managed to finish building the first house, which then gave us some equity to then convert the second property. And that was kind of... If my father had ever said to me before he left, you're having this because I know this will set you up for life because there's an opportunity here for planning, and he did it in a more considered manner, then I may have understood. But in modern day terms, I did this with the kids once. It's about 270 grand's worth of debt when you're 21. You know, and this is a lad that's just come out of uni and has walked away from two very, very good opportunities, one in the Cotswolds and one in London. And I think you can see, see in the young footballers, they talk about Sacco, he's got no fear. I kind of thought, well, yeah, I suppose let's get on with it. Of what have you got to lose? Yeah, let's just yeah, get on with it. It's going to happen. You've got to no. lose. So from there to YGS, now you've got contracts with people like Sherford, mm. you've got a large company, you employ people. Are you sort of comfortable in that space? Is that why you're now looking at other things and challenging yourself? I think one of the things from my childhood, and you know, I've had counselling about this, is you know your self-esteem and your belief in yourself. And when you're questioned and challenged as a child continuously, I believe in all that sort of stuff, it does shape your character. So I have an inner drive to always be better. And if I plant my goal at 460, thousand trees in the next five years but if i plant four hundred six thousand i'll want to do another four hundred six thousand it's kind of an inane drive that i can't explain in any other way other than that inability to quash that sort of lack of belief when i was younger yeah and i'll come back to that in a moment that's very interesting because was that why you got involved with the mayflower 400 forest you know with the mayflower forest down at marsh mills and you helped drive that project with emma didn't you yeah so emma hewitt i mean what a phenomenal she's a, she's a force of nature become a great friend and an absolute inspiration and you know there's the saying if you want to do it contact emma hewitt and it is just just <laughs> unbelievable <laughs> i can believe it because she is unbelievable yeah. but yes and no i think there was a desire through the building plymouth networking to want to contribute to something that would make a difference and be celebratory or commemorative for the 2020 and as a group of people you know Carl Friedrich, Dave Dave Bayliss, Adam, myself and Emma and Rachel we formed a road to Mayflower and we identified that the Marshmills roundabout which was in a you know pretty rundown state was a good opportunity to sort of improve the visitor experience but also you know a thousand trees. But you had a say even in the type of tree didn't you which linked to sure. the Mayflower project sure. and to taking pollution out of the atmosphere. Yeah yeah, yeah 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 we did the research and you know birch there are large swathes of birch planting in Massachusetts it all kind of ticked a lot of boxes when you actually did the research and you realised that the native Indians use birch trees for their canoes and they drink the and all sorts of stuff but you're absolutely right as well from a pollution perspective it's got very hairy leaves so it increases the surface area it traps the pollution particles but it's also a beautiful tree in the context of it's got lovely white bark and yeah. so you know it's not something that hasn't been done before we've seen it in gardens and stuff and in fact Betula jack montii is a tree that's grown as a multi-stem so you get three or four white stems that 
it's grown for that reason. It's a beautiful thing throughout the year. And then we had the opportunity to add to that with three and a half thousand square metres of wildflowers. And mm. they're looking absolutely stunning at the moment. I'm really yeah. proud of the team's efforts there. We've still got some surprises to come. It's all a little bit of a shame that we've... Oh, the whole Mayflower, the whole Mayflower thing. Yeah. Oh. You couldn't write it, could you? If there no. was a script, if it was a movie, you'd can it because yeah. it's almost corny yeah. that there's been all this planning and then, months and months and months and then the whole thing scuppered. It really is a shame. I mean, there's lots of good that's coming out of it. I don't want to totally knock Mayflower, but I see what you mean. You know, there were even better things could have happened, mm. much more in-person events and what have you. And your latest project is a plan to plant micro-forests and it's a new method and I wanted to call it Izzy Miyaki but I think that's an aftershave <laughs> tell us what it really is and what your plan is I read about it a couple of years ago there's a gentleman called Dr Akira Miyawaki that's the one and actually you've kind of fed into the sort of how the idea evolved in that the first time I read about this his planting methodology is just one of those light bulb moments I've known about plants since I was seven years of age and then you read this article when you're 54 and you slap your head and think why on earth hadn't I thought of that yeah. basically he has sort of challenged the modern planting technique most landscape architects and landscapers plant forestry commission and so on most people involved in this we plant at a meter center the idea being that we want the tree to achieve its true form to you know allow it to get as many nutrients as possible to not have competition of course that flies in the face of nature nature trees drop their seeds they land where they land and it's pretty much get on with it it's a survival of the fittest he's basically taken that and applied that to a planting technique so his planting technique is called the mere wacky method i set myself the goal of i wanted to plant this one six thousand tree throughout Devon that actually represents one tree for every child that lives in Devon now that number may well change and until I've sort of formed the idea I've got a bit more work to do on the idea but the context being that I wanted it to also be an educational piece feel passionately about the need for getting kids involved with the environment and understanding and they need to be we've fisted up this planet pretty badly over the last sort of few decades and we need to get a move on and the beauty of this Miyawaki method is that the trees compete so they grow up to five times quicker and they can achieve a forest like canopy within 20 years as opposed to a traditional planting method of 200 to 300 years so the carbon sequestration goes through the roof the way it manages water goes through the biodiversity some of the forests have recorded over 500 different species of flora and fauna just in that and the point to mention Stu is that the area can be as little as a tennis court so reading this was a real light bulb moment and I struggled with the name and then it was one evening I just come up with the idea I thought oh hang on a minute my wacky forest perhaps we could do some kids things around that so you know I'm delighted I've been working on this yeah. for 18 months and now holding a, <laughs> a draft of my wacky forest so you're going to be a children's author I'm going to do whatever I need to do to sort of get the message out there I think this is a really really big opportunity I think the pandemic has really focused people's minds on the importance of nature Dave David Attenborough's banging the drum for years. The Environmental Agency have just issued a report about carbon offsetting and the importance of it and the effectiveness of tree planting within the context of carbon offsetting. And what was interesting in that report alone was that there were seven KPIs and it got green. In other words, it was as efficient as it could be in six out of those seven. And the one area that it performed poorly was length of time for establishment. So suddenly the My Wacky Forest method which is, I believe, something that should be inherited across the board. Is It should be used for all of the reasons talked about. It makes that carbon sequestration and carbon offsetting, it maximises the opportunities of that particular method. And you're using this as an educational tool, so you've yeah. got some characters in it. Mushy the Mushroom. Yeah, Mushy's obviously a 
fun guy. I know you like your puns. <laughs> I do. Where did that stem from? Oh, dear, right. The model I'm working on is to facilitate corporate entities being able to carbon offset as efficiently as possible. So I've set up YGS Futures, and the idea is that we use that as a vessel to allow people to plant microforests within schools. And part of the package that they're going to be buying as that sponsorship, part of the package will be a provision of 50 books about the Maiwaki Forest or similar material depending on age and size of school. So the entity itself, the corporate entity, the company can supply as much or as little educational material as possible. But integral to the whole sort of project is that there's going to be an obligation for there to supply some because fundamentally this is for me about wanting to get the mums and the dads and the teachers and the community around planting those forests and getting involved with those forests and understanding what's in those forests and I've quite deliberately made the main character mushy because two of my kids out of the four hated them you know they're not a popular thing when I read Isabella Tree's book about rewilding I learned an awful lot about the mycelia and about mushrooms and how the mycorrhizal bacteria enable trees to communicate with each other and yeah, uh, it's amazing isn't it the trees fascinating talk to each other in yeah effect. i'm hoping if this gains some traction that mushy the importance of mushrooms and the importance of that whole sort of sector of the planting world i just hope that kids get involved with it and they want to learn a bit more about it and businesses get involved with it there's definitely something the chamber and ygs can do together isn't there absolutely yeah I, yeah if you'd like to feature on a future episode of in conversation with send an email to info at freshairstudios.com You're clearly driven and you clearly have a passion for this stuff but you're kind of hard on yourself you're not you drive Mm. and drive and drive and Mm. I know you've been quite open in some ways about the fact you struggled a little with your mental health Mm. is that because of this drive did you just burn out I think that's a really good point Stu I think I'm a workaholic I'm very driven by that and always wanting to do better and when I was younger I didn't really appreciate the need or concept for rest I didn't even want to go on holiday it was a waste of my time I just needed to crack on and get the next job done and do better and design another garden whatever it was and then of course I hit 40 had a fairly traumatic experience with a contracts manager who had fraudulently taken quite a significant amount of money out of the company and I lost a lot of money you know you've got the liquidators in your kitchen Mm. with your wife and your accountant and a great friend sat there in a bit of a wreck and a bit of a pickle Mm. it was pretty challenging it was a turning point I'd been possibly naive but I'm not a natural MD I think I'm more of a creative Mm. I'm more of a sales type I'm more of a fluffy sort of person that wasn't to say I didn't have all the practical skills but it wasn't about money for the first 20 odd years and it might sound you know people who know me know where I live you know I have been reasonably successful whatever that means but numerous years in a row I'd be sitting there with my accountant and he'd be saying Steve it's great that you're building up a reputation as a garden designer and you've done some lovely gardens it's all lovely he said but you've got to start making some money mate because you know you're 20 years away from your pension and da 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 it took having my first breakdown and having this sort of fairly dark period when I was in my early 40s which was brought on by this particular chap and the things that I had not managed correctly it took that for me to kind of get that idea that this company that I've created does exist for making money and that has to come first and I wasn't comfortable with it I was very comfortable with 
helping people out and you know if i'd finished a garden they wanted an extra planter i'd give them an extra planter and i wouldn't bother that kind of thing i just wanted them to be happy that's exhausting people pleasing i've got to be honest i probably still still do that well that's good in the sense that you want people to be happy but you've got to look after yourself and you forgive me pushing on this but you said your first breakdown you've had a couple i've had more than a couple (laughs) (laughs) okay i'm sorry i've had sort of three and a half i mean the first one was interesting i reflect upon the first one as when i bought the company I was 21 I would say I was autocratic at best I would say I expected anybody that worked with me to keep up with me which of course is nonsensical because I was driven about the fact it was my company it was my bills and therefore to ask a young labourer an apprentice or another skilled guy to keep up with the boss it's just not realistic and I used to really really struggle with other people's inability to be as driven as me why won't you come in Saturday you know etc well because I've got a life this is your life I just look back on it not embarrassed but I didn't know any better I was 21 and I had no sort of life skills but I then when I had the breakdown and realized my family my life everything I'd worked for had been very very close to going bankrupt and all the repercussions of that also my mother who had been in partnership for a long time you know there was a potential for her losing her head it was all getting very messy but I didn't accept that I was depressed. I couldn't comprehend that because from my father's days through to how I ran the company, you don't get ill. You just get on with it. It's a nonsense. Just yeah. grow a pair, as they used to say. Yeah. and Stiff up a lip and all that. I remember the first time one of my chaps phoned in sick and he's got his doctor note for stress. And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? You've no idea what stress is, you know, mm. as I did. And I just buried it. But I look back now and I used to leave for work which was a 20-minute drive. I used to leave half an hour before because I knew that in my journey to work, I would stop the car in a certain bay in Yampton. I would get out, I would vomit, I'd get back in the car, and then I'd continue my journey. So I changed my lifestyle to accept that. When I look back at it now, you know, crazy. But back then, we didn't know what mental health was. I certainly didn't. And I'm being very generalistic when I say that, but I don't think it was accepted. It certainly wasn't talked about. So to then be told when you're 40 and having run a company already for 20 years, to be then told you've got to change your ways and you've got to do this differently. Oh, and by the way, you might need to go on antidepressants. I was like, what are you talking about? And it took me probably three months to actually acknowledge believe that that they were right and I was wrong and I was the one with the problem so that was the first one the second one was more about I spent the following sort of 18 months two years working out of that hole financially Mm. and back then we're talking about you know interest was being added on top of interest on top of credit Mm. cards some really really you know tough times and you know my suppliers all bar one were phenomenal they were accepting of my plight they were you know clearly frustrated but it was a very proud moment when I paid the final debt and my accountant I phoned my accountant and told him I've done it and I've finished paying off the credit cards and we've got some money in the bank and we've done it and so on great and then the following day I woke up gibbering wreck in bed and absolutely didn't see it coming at all totally understandable looking back at it well it's an interesting one because I didn't realize that all I did is I literally got my head down and I'm saying I you know I pushed the team and it was work 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 pay off the bit I just it was nothing and I'm sure my family were young at the time my kids but you know they probably got used to the fact I was always home late and so on but it was that goal I was so embarrassed inside about how I'd nearly lost 
all of this for my family's sake and you know wanting to provide and the dad and all that and then suddenly to see that it may have gone so I was so driven and my counsellor one or two sessions in said that the analogy she gave was that if you can imagine you've light at this end of this tunnel and if you imagine you're climbing up this ladder to the light and then you spend your whole life climbing that ladder just to get there and then you open up the lid you get out you close the lid you turn around you dust your trousers down you stick your hands in the air in elation and then you look around and you've got absolutely no idea which direction to go in that was a very helpful sort of analogy yes analogy in that i had spent two years nigh on literally focused on nothing but getting out of the debt and then when i got out of the debt my body went right you've had enough now it made you have a break my brother's a doctor and he's always said to me if you push yourself too hard your body will find a way to make you have a break whether you want one or not yeah it will find a way i found myself sleeping yeah. for days it was very very weird and then after a couple of weeks then the guilt came in because i'm not at work but i was so tired and so mentally worn out and frustrated at my inability to see what this guy was doing and annoyed with getting my family so close to that sort of i'm not going to be dramatic but you know they'd grown up in a lifestyle they're accustomed to and you know i got to this precipice or whatever you want to call it i don't want to be dramatic but you know the realization that that was going to be going you know i was so embarrassed about that and so this made me realize that you know i really needed to keep an eye on YGS and and how it was going and manage it and run it and the other stuff that I really wanted to do the sort of more charity stuff community stuff and stuff I really really want to get into would have to wait until such time as the company was able to function without me and I'm guessing from what you're doing now hopefully you're going to tell me it's doing okay that you can do this stuff and you're not over pushing yourself again I think if I was in a classroom this would be a seven out of ten sort of time I think I've got a phenomenal team my stepson Tom in the office some great characters on the ground and wonderful Nick who's been with me for five years who's unfortunately retiring next year and then I've got some great guys really young talented chaps and it hasn't been easy you know we had a bit of a blip a few years ago when the director that I was setting up for this decided to go off and take a numerous amount of my staff and set up down the road and the trials and tribulations of trust in business is so difficult trust is huge and I'm probably too trusting Mm. and I'd very nearly repeated what I did the first time I empowered him to do far too much and took my eye off the ball so I'd like to think I've done that twice now I'm not going to do it again I've spread the weight I've got a bigger team rather than one person And you mentioned earlier, Stu, I mean, we've done some wonderful work at Sherford. Long may that continue. We've got some fantastic contracts with some really, you know, exciting sites coming on. The order book is flourishing. We've taken on another seven chaps, including my daughter, this year. And we are looking really, really good. So long may it continue. I'm really pleased for you. And you deserve it because you have worked incredibly hard. I'm really grateful for you opening up about those mental health issues because I think you're inspirational and more inspirational than you think. I remember you and I were in the same WhatsApp group and I won't say what it was but it's quite a blokey group and you opened up on that group Mm. and I can remember seeing your message saying you know I'm sorry guys I've been struggling a bit and the flood of support you had Mm. it makes me quite difficult to think about Mm. it now you have people just come out saying wow well done you Steve you know Mm. well done for saying that and I think that was a real turning point for a lot of people realising you can actually say this. And it's not a weakness to say, I've really been struggling. And I really respect and admire you for that. Well, thank you. And I know exactly what you're talking about. And I was incredibly moved by the comments mm. that were coming, yourself included. Mm. And I do remember 
It was cathartic for myself and it was perhaps part of the journey that I've gone through in learning how to communicate this. But it was also, I would like to think, as you've used the word, inspirational, I hoped. And if I've helped anybody... And I do know of personal circumstances. I'm very proud to say that I had a 17-year-old lad who was suffering with a major panic attack at work. And he was in my office at half past six. And I lent him my brown paper bag that I kept in my room to help me breathing. Because I knew that's what he needed. And I calmed him down. He was in a really bad place. And he stayed with us for about another month. I've still got a thank you card in my office, which Mm. he gave me. You can't buy that. That's just great stuff. And if I can continue doing that for as long as I'm allowed to be on this planet, then... That's great for me. Steve, my last question was going to be, what do you want your legacy to be? But I think you've just answered it. And you leave an amazing legacy already about what you've done, what you've achieved, the people you've inspired, about your business. And yet you're not going to stop. Just promise me Mm. that you're going to look after yourself because you are too important to Plymouth and to the region and to the planet and to your family. So please look after yourself. We are here for you as a chamber. But thank you so much. I mean, I hope people listen to this and are inspired. I hope so. And I did want to say I've got four wonderful children, a wonderful wife, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute delight, and I suspect we'll be speaking again. I hope so. Thank you, Stu, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about these important things. My Wacky Forest. We look out for it. Thank Thank you you very much, Steve. In Conversation With is produced by Fresh Air Studios. Full audio production services for podcasts, live links, and corporate communications. Visit freshairstudios.com. Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpott. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess-Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved.